Don't even go there. I got to get this going now, so I know what I'm doing. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? From the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, we hear these words. And he personally, he personally, God, he personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the training of the saints in the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. Would you pray with me? Father, may your word speak to us today with power, with clarity, and may your truth overshadow all falsehood as it has always done. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Every three months, I bring a message on one of the nine marks of a healthy church. This morning, we come to mark number eight. We're almost there. We've talked about a lot of different things that are marks, signs, qualities of a healthy church. But I want to begin this morning by introducing you to uh, a man that I'm going to call Dan. His name, Dan is not his name. That's not his picture. But, um, well, actually, that's not his picture yet anyway. But Dan's going to be up there in a second. Dan was actually a member of my last seminary church before we graduated in Cave City, Kentucky. He was about my age now, his late 50s. And he was being interviewed to serve as a deacon in our church. And because I was the... Um, novice minister of music and youth, I was invited to sit in on the ordaining council. I was an ordained pastor, and I was invited to sit in, and not knowing when to speak and when to be silent, I started asking Dan some questions. Much to my pastor's smiling chagrin, I think, but he did kind of smile beneath his hand. Good old Wayne Hayes. And I said, Brother Dan, would you please share a little bit about how you came to be a Christian? And he began sharing about how when he was a teenager in the 70s, he had gone to a uh, rally, uh, or in the 60s, I mean, and he'd gone to a rally, and um, he was full of problems. He was at the end of his rope, and he went to this, 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 this meeting, this rally that was going on with, with students, with teenagers, and while he was there, someone came over to him and began talking to him. We could tell he was distraught and began speaking to him about God's love and, and how God would, could help him with the things he was going through in his life. He said, I need all the help I could get. And so they said, uh, he said, how do I do that? And they said, well, here. And, they, and they, they pulled out a little booklet and they read to him some things in the booklet and said, uh, now, I want you just to repeat after me and we're going to read this prayer on the back of this little booklet. And he said, and I began reading, I was reading it to God. And, and, I, and I, they said, do you, do you believe that's true? And I said, well, yeah, I believe it. They said, well, good, you're a Christian. Congratulations. They shook my hand. And that's how I became a Christian. And in my 28-year-old mind, something just bothered me. 
Because I'd watched Dan for almost two years, and Dan was not a bad man at all. Maybe he taught Sunday school. But he just had a way about him of asking more questions than giving answers. Questioning things. So I asked him some more. I said, well, Dan, tell me since then about your, a little bit about your Christian life. He said, well, he said, you know, for the most part, I've been real faithful in church. One time I did drop out for a year because I was mad at the preacher and figured that if I just showed them by my lack of attendance that I didn't like him, sooner or later they'd get rid of him. And sure enough, they did. And then I came back and I, my, my teenagers, uh, Steve, you've got them in your youth group. They, uh, for a while, we took them out of youth because we had a youth pastor before you. He was crazy. He was talking about things like going to Africa and doing things like, little did he know, but things like that, you know, and, and he was going to just turn my kids' lives upside down. And so I just took my kids out of any of the youth activities. You starting to feel my hesitance about Dan's testimony? I said, well, Dan, just tell me, in the last year, what has God taught you in your life? Well, I'll tell you one thing I've learned, Steve, that is, it is it's hard being a Christian. It's a, it's a tough thing. It's really, a, it's, it's hard. I, I just do the best I can and, and do what I know is right and, and try my best to be a Christian. I went to Wayne Hayes after I said, Pastor Wayne, I, I, am, I am a kid. I am young. I have heartfelt fear about this man. And he said, I do too. But he's the second leading giver in our church. And we're not going to stop his ordination if the deacons decide to ordain him. And they did. Five years later, his wife left him because he was having an unrepentant affair with another woman in the church. To this day, as far as I know, Dan is as far from God as any lost person can be. Dan may have not been interested in growing spiritually in his life, but George Barna has told us, his organization since he's retired, has told us over and over and over that in America today, over 80% of Americans, even those that never darken the door of a church, say they want to see spiritual growth in their lives. Maybe they don't know what that means, but they know there's something in them that needs to grow stronger in their spiritual world. And one of the marks, I believe, of a healthy church is that we are both individually and as a family growing spiritually, which really is what we mean when we use the word discipleship. Now, isn't it interesting that the word discipleship comes from the same root word that we used three months ago when we talked about church discipline? Discipline and discipleship, both based on the concept of being a disciple, a committed follower of a teacher, in this case, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But more than just being a follower, being transformed by that teacher. That's what spiritual growth, that's what spiritual maturity is all about. So this morning, I want to take our time talking about this mark of a healthy church. And that is a commitment and a concern for spiritual growth and spiritual maturity in the lives of us as believers, as members of the family, and of our church as a whole. And I want to do that by asking four questions, all right? I'm going to spend, I'll tell you now, I already planned it, spend most of my time on the first two. The last two will just be kind of summary questions as we go forward and prepare for the Lord's Supper. The first question is, is spiritual growth really a biblical concept? There's a lot of people that will say, now wait a minute, I know how we are as Americans. We believe that if, if this is good, hat twice as big is better. If your business makes a million dollars this year, and if it makes two million dollars next year, that means it's doing better than it did before. We are a people who believe in progress. In fact, even our forebears in the UK, one of the things that amazes them to this day about us as Americans is our absolute passion for progress. 
Matter of fact, some of you have been the victims of that when your boss would get rid of older employees to bring in newer hires. And part of the reason was because they were cheaper, just to be perfectly honest with you, but also because they would bring in new ideas and then we could help us to progress, to move forward in the work, the company, the factory, whatever it may be. So my question, the first question, the one we need to really go to the Scriptures, and we're going to spend most of our time in this question is, is it a biblical concept to grow spiritually? Now, I hope you know the answer to that question, but in a few minutes after I hit you with 20 different references, which is why you're going to pull your pencil out and your piece of paper and write these down because you don't have time to look at all of them, you will see for a fact that, in fact, the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is all about growth. Matter of fact, it starts right in the day of creation. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 22, as God is creating the world, after he's created the animals and the birds and the fish of the sea, he says in verse 22, be, uh, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters of the seas, let the birds multiply on the earth. And then when you get down to his creation of humanity, in verse 27 and 28, it says in verse 28 that God blessed them, that's the man and the woman, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, rule the birds of the sky, rule every creature that crawls on the earth. So from the very beginning, God says, I created you to multiply. I created you to expand. I created you to grow. Just a few pages later in Genesis, the world turns totally against following God. Only one family is left on the face of the earth, Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And God destroys the rest of the planet in a worldwide flood. And when we get to chapter 9, what is the very first thing God says to Noah after he comes out of the ark? He says, God blessed, it says, the Bible says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So again, that is their task. You go on through the Old Testament. Abraham, I will make you a great nation. Isaac, Jacob, then they go to Egypt. Well, that was kind of a bad turn, wasn't it? Well, they went into Egypt, 70 people. They came out 2 million people. Now, it took them 400 years to get there. But God was expanding them and growing them and helping them to multiply. Joshua brings them into the promised land, and again, they multiply, and they begin to fill the land. Even going into Babylon in judgment, when they went there, God was using it to help them to grow. In the book of Jeremiah, there's a wonderful verse that I just love because they were there thinking, man, I can't wait to get back home, can't wait to get back to to, to Israel, can't wait to get back to the promised land. And Jeremiah tells them, or the Lord tells them through Jeremiah, in chapter 29, verse 6 of Jeremiah, he says, take wives in Babylon Take wives, have sons, have daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do you get a pattern here? God is constantly in the business of telling his people, I want you to multiply. I want you to expand. I want you to grow. Now, nobody think God must be from Texas, you know. He doesn't follow the whole idea of Fleischer that says, you know, smaller is better. But... We've got to be careful of what we're looking for because, for example, in, in uh, the book of Psalms, in Psalm um, 49, excuse me, Psalm 92, first Psalm 92, look at the 49. In Psalm 92, he talks about the result of being righteous. In 92, 12, and 13, he says, the righteous will thrive like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they thrive in the courts of our God. So it seems that God would tie a righteous life with expansion, multiplication, and growth. But we have to watch out for what we're 
growing toward? What is we're looking for in that growth? In Psalm 49, verses 16 and 17, the psalmist reminds us, Do not be afraid when a man gets rich, when the wealth of his house increases, for when he dies, he will take nothing at all. His wealth will not follow him down. So there are certain types of ways that we're not necessarily interested in multiplying. It's not a bad thing, but it's not the primary thing that we're looking for as we multiply, because as it says here, death is going to take it away from you. We're looking for a kind of multiplication and growth that death cannot steal away from us. It's interesting, every year at Christmas time, we read from the book of Isaiah. And one of the passages that we almost always read, matter of fact, Martha Ward made us some beautiful banners that we use in this room during the Christmas season. And it has some of the words from Isaiah chapter 9. Wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then in verse 7, this is what it says. His dominion, his kingdom will be vast, and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So we begin to see that this prosperity, this expansion, this growth is not just a a numerical thing. It's not just a financial thing. It's not just a physical thing. It is a spiritual thing. It is the expanding and growth of God's kingdom. Jesus himself talked about this. If you go to Matthew chapter 13, Jesus talks about the, the mustard seed that falls into the ground. Tiny little seed. And this is what he says in the middle of that parable about the mustard seed. In Matthew 13, 32, he says, the mustard seed is the smallest of all the seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the vegetables and becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. See, there's growth. There's expansion. God says his kingdom will grow and will expand. And sure enough, the seed, Jesus himself, did fall into the ground and die. But out of his death and his resurrection, look at what we have today. Look at what God has done through the blood of one man, his son, Jesus Christ. And so we look, okay, so what did happen from that? Well, let's just take just a minute and bounce around in Acts just a little bit. In Acts chapter 6, this is before the stoning of Stephen. It says, in those days, chapter 6, verse 1, as the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint by the Hellenists. So it tells us the church was multiplying. The church was growing. It was becoming bigger. If you go down to verse 7 in that same chapter of Acts chapter 6, it says, so the preaching of God flourished. The number of disciples in Jerusalem multiplied greatly, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Things go on. Things get tough. There's some persecution. Acts chapter 12 the scriptures tell us that after Herod's death, there's some trouble, some issues going on. But then in verse 24, it says, God's message flourished and multiplied. You go on from there to Acts chapter 13, verse 49. So the message of the Lord spread through the whole region. And then in chapter 19, verse 20, it says, in this way, the Lord's message flourished and prevailed. You see, this growth is numerical. Yes, it is, but it's not just numerical. In fact, it's not even primarily numerical. 
Just because a church is more crowded this year than it was last year doesn't necessarily mean it's a healthier church. You have to look and find out why is that happening? What is going on behind the scenes? And we learn that what we're looking for is not just more people, people who are growing. So in the book of Ephesians, for example, the passage we just read a moment ago, in verses 15 and 16, here's what Paul says. Let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Jesus Christ. From him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. Do you hear what he's saying? The growth that Paul is talking about, the expansion that Paul is talking about, is an expansion of spiritual maturity and life. How does it happen? Well, God does it. It's God's work. It's done through Christ. In the book of Colossians, Paul says this to the church of Colossae. He's talking about someone who is judging over things that really don't matter. And the problem is that they are insisting on legalistic things. And in verse 19 of Colossians chapter 2, he says, he doesn't, mean the person who's doing these things, he doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, develops with growth from God. Where does growth come from? It comes from God. Through Christ who is the head. It is not ultimately dependent on the preacher. Aren't you glad? I am. Now, some pastors, preachers are naturally attractive physically in terms of their ability to speak. Nothing wrong with that. But that's not what ultimately pulls people to the gospel. There was an issue going on in the city of Corinth. Some people were fans of Paul. Some people were fans of Apollos. Some were fans of Peter. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says this, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. In other words, Paul says, listen, it doesn't matter who declares it, what matters is the one who is acting on what is declared, and that is God and God himself. Jesus himself had talked about that. Back in Mark chapter 4, Jesus is talking about the parable of the growing seed and the farmer who throws the seed out. And he says, I'll start in verse 26. That's not on the screen, but I'll read 26 just to lead in. The kingdom of God is like this, he said. A man scatters seed on the ground. And then verse 27, he sleeps, he rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He doesn't know how. The soil produces a crop by itself. So Jesus himself is trying to say, look, don't depend on man's strength, man's power. God is the one who is doing the work. So whenever a church was thriving, what did Paul do? He thanked God for it. He thanked God for what was happening in 2 Thessalonians. He says, we must always thank God for you, brothers, which is right since your faith is flourishing. And the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. On the other side of that coin, when the church began to struggle, what did he do? He prayed for them. He didn't scorn them. He didn't take them a new program. didn't put them a, give them a new study course book. He prayed for them. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, before they had gotten to where they were in 2 Thessalonians, here's what Paul says. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we also do for you. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. You see, when Paul saw a church that wasn't flourishing, 
he went to the source. Didn't go to the pastor, didn't go to the deacons, didn't go to the Bible study leaders. He went to God and asked God to give them growth. Same thing happened in Colossae, in the book of Colossians. If I can find it. Well, can't find it now. That's okay. In Colossians, oh, it's back here. There it is, Colossians 1.10. So that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God. Are you getting the picture? God believes in growth. God believes in spiritual expansion. But it doesn't mean that we don't have a role to play in the process as well. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter closes his second letter, verse 18. He says, but grow. That's a command. I'm telling you, Christians, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. So we should want to grow spiritually. Peter tells us to grow. How do we do that? Well, if you turn back a page or two in, in, in Peter, if you go back to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, he says there are some qualities you need to have. And he says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, there are some qualities that you need to have. And if you have these qualities, you will grow spiritually. Well, that's nice, Peter, but what are they? He says, glad you asked. Back up to verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brother affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are in you, and are increasing, are growing, are expanding, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of God. We grow by cultivating these qualities in our lives as God by His Spirit enables us to do that. And finally, we look to God's Word. In 1 Peter chapter 2, listen to the words that Peter says. Beginning in verse 2 down to verse 5, like newborn infants desire the pure spiritual milk so that you may grow by it for your salvation since you have tasted that the Lord is good. Coming to him, a living stone, rejected by men but chosen and valuable to God, you yourselves as living stones are being built into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Desire his word. All right, everybody look up here for a second. Take a real deep breath. Let it out. <sighs> okay. For the last 12 minutes, we've looked at 20 passages of Scripture that all point to one thing. God believes that we should be growing spiritually. And he wants us to partner with him in our spiritual growth. When we do, we give him thanks. When we're not, we go to him in prayer. Lord, what's wrong? Why am I not growing? What's going on in my life? So if you had any doubt 12 minutes ago whether or not the Bible teaches the concept of spiritual growth. I hope this has put it to rest for you. I hope you understand that this is something all of us should be striving for with God's help in our individual lives and then corporately as a church. That leads me to the second question, which is how? What kind of church does it take to have this kind of spiritual growth going on? What needs to be going on in that church? Lots of programs, lots of activities, 17 different outreach programs. What does it take? Well, I think it goes back to the other marks that we've already talked about. It takes good expositional preaching. 
we need to be looking into God's Word and see what God's Word says. And one of the greatest benefits of expositional preaching, among many, is the fact that you stop being dependent on the preacher because you love the Word more than you love the deliverer of the Word. I hope you love me, but I hope you love God's Word more. So God willing, I were to fall over tomorrow with a heart attack and another pastor come in. You would mourn, hopefully, for a day or two, but then you say, you know what? We're still going through Matthew. We're still studying God's Word. The same Word that Pastor Steve taught us, Pastor Bob or Bill or Sam or Joe is preaching to us. Because that's how we build our spiritual strength, by looking not to the preacher, but to the Word and what the Word has to say. Secondly, we do it through having a good, basic, uh, biblical theology, an understanding of biblical doctrine, understanding the big picture of what God is doing. One of the reasons why I am preaching along with what we're doing in Bible study is because as we do that, we can see the pattern of God's work and His plan from Genesis all the way through to the culmination. Even today, if you were in Bible study this morning, our passage was on what? Lord's Supper. And that wonderful verse 29 of Matthew 26, when Jesus said, I will not drink this cup with you again until I drink it with you new in the kingdom. There's that promise, I'm coming back. You see, there's a plan. As we learn that, it helps us to grow. It it helps when we have a good understanding of what the gospel is all about. The gospel is not in a little booklet. It's in the Bible. And the gospel says that we, because of our sins, have been separated under God's curse We look at ourselves, we see ourselves for who we really and truly are. And then, because of that, we are amazed at what God does in loving us in spite of our sin. People say there's two kinds of preachers. There's hellfire damnation preachers, and there's preachers that preach the love of God. But i got news for you. If all you preach is the love of God, the love will get less and less and less and less. You know why? Because the more you preach about God's love, the less you feel like you need God's love. Somebody's got to remind us how sinful we really are. So then when we talk about God's love, we are amazed and tears come to our eyes in thankfulness for what Christ did for us through his death on the cross. We understand what conversion is all about. We understand that we cannot save ourselves, that God has to do it. And we trust him. That's why we believe the Bible teaches that those who are in Christ will persevere, not by any merit in us, but by God's merit. He's the one that made the promise to hold us and to keep us. That changes the way we look at evangelism. We recognize the fact that a person coming to Christ is not dependent on us. It's dependent on God. God is the one that does the saving. So if I can't answer every one of their questions, guess what? You want me to say it? It's okay. You don't have to be able to answer all of their questions. All we have to do is just talk about the love of God and what he has done in our lives. What Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. It means that we commit ourselves to being together as members of a local body, to hold each other accountable, to love each other, to pray for each other, to counsel one another. You have been so wonderful to Sharon and me and Sharon's dad these last few weeks. I know you will continue to be that way while we wait for God to do what only God can do. And that's part of what being in a church family is all about. That's what church membership means. It's not being a member of a club, it's being a member of a body. I can quit the Kiwanis Club any day and they won't even remember I can guarantee if I cut my finger off, I'll remember it for a long, long time. That's the kind of membership we need in the First Baptist Church of Waterloo. That's the kind of membership we need in every local body of believers. Membership that matters to us. And that's why we have discipline. This one's not designed to punish people. This one's designed to help us be holy so the church and, and the world can see that we are truly striving to live lives that are growing spiritually. And that means we have to have good biblical leaders. You should constantly be watching your leaders, your pastors your deacons, to make sure that they are men 
who are qualified and capable of leading as we grow in Christ-likeness. Third question. Okay, pastor, I see it's a biblical concept. All those things help. But is it really, really important for me? Is it really important for me to grow spiritually? Yes, it is. You want to know why? I'll tell you why. Because, now I'm getting down to the important stuff. All the other stuff was important, but it was just introduction. This is the important thing. The number, stop. The number one way that a lost world will believe the truth of the Christian message is by seeing how our lives are changed by it. It doesn't matter how many outlines you memorize. It doesn't matter how many scripture passages you have marked in your Bible. All those things are important. I'm not belittling them. But what really makes a difference is what they see in us, not from us. That's why in 1 Peter chapter 2, listen to the words that Peter says. He says, I'm going to back up. I know I didn't put it on the screen, but it says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and temporary residents to abstain from fleshly desires that war against you. Then verse 12, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, that is the lost around you, so that in the case where they speak against you as those who do what, do what is evil, they will, by observing your good works, do what? Glorify God on the day of visitation. I think Peter was remembering the Sermon on the Mount, wasn't he? Remember Matthew chapter 5? You are the light of the world. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. He could just stop right there. And it sounded very self-gratifying. Let your light shine so they can see all your good works you do. But it doesn't stop there. And do what? Glorify your Father. See, if we want God to receive glory in our lives, the way we do that is by growing spiritually so that the world can see how he is changing us into the image of Christ and go, now that is something worth being a part of, and they will glorify God. Not us. Boy, you really are working hard at that. No, I'm not. God's doing it in me. God is changing my life. Jonathan Edwards, famous pastor, brilliant theologian. I try not to use the word brilliant too often, but he really was. Many of you know the name John Piper. John Piper is former pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. He retired from that. He's president of a school that was started there. Piper has spent his entire life studying the 30-some-odd volumes of Jonathan Edwards' writings. And he says, next to the Bible, Jonathan Edwards is my anchor, my guide. Edwards wrote a book, typical 18th century title, Treatise Concerning Religious Affections. But in it he says, the way that we understand what it means to truly be a Christian is not by the excitement in our lives over things, not by the love that we have for people, not by the things that we do or the actions that we have, the zeal that we have, the praise to God, the confidence in our own faith. None of those are infallible evidences of truly being born again. They're great things, and they will come if a person is born again, but they also can be faked. He's only one thing that will be an absolute, sure measure of a person's spiritual growth. The only certain, observable sign of such growth is a life of increasing holiness rooted in Christian self-denial. In other words, the more godly we become, the more people will know that we truly are His. So growing in Christ's likeness, 
growing in godliness, growing in holiness. Last thing, and we'll be done. What if we don't grow? What about Dan? Well, now, Pastor, yeah, you know, it's not supposed to judge people. You can't say he's not a Christian. You don't know that. Well, you're right, I don't. But I also know that when I go out in my backyard, I've got these thorny bushes that grow along next to the... Sharon always wants me to pull out, but I haven't gotten found gloves thick enough yet to not get stuck by those thorns because those things got thorns like spikes. And you look, and they're, some of them are red, some of them are green. They have different colored leaves on them. But there's one right in the middle that ain't got nary a thing but thorns. It ain't got nary a leaf on it. You might want to tell me what the condition of that bush is. That buddy's dead, let me tell you. He's dead. You don't have to be brilliant. I don't have to be Scott's lawn man. No, that plant is dead, okay? And when we see a person, no matter what they may say, no matter how they may look on the outside, whose life is not testifying to spiritual growth and development and maturity, it's a pretty fair guess to us to assume that person and treat that person as if he or she were not a believer. Not that we scorn them, but that we can reach out with the gospel to them. We've talked about that before in church discipline. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18. The reason you treat them as a publican or a sinner is so that you can reach out with love and share the gospel. Because there's a very good indication that they're not truly saved. You say, whoa, wait a minute, pastor. Don't, then there's some kind of verse in Corinthians about people being carnal. Somewhere in Paul's writings, he says, you know, you can be a carnal Christian. Well, let me ask you an honest question. Would you just take just a minute, let me take off my pastor preaching garb and just, just ask you a question for just a minute. Do you understand what we do when we talk about somebody being a carnal Christian? We create a third class of person. All right, we have one person over here who rejects Jesus Christ. That person is lost, okay? We have another person who has surrendered their life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Christ is on the, is on the throne of their lives. He is the Lord of their lives. He is ruling and reigning. But now, there's a, another, a middle ground. Well, you can be a Christian and you can be saved, but, but Christ isn't in control of your life and you just live any way you want to. That's a carnal Christian. Really? Sharon, I love you dearly. And uh, we've been married for 36 years this coming Tuesday. Congratulations. You'll be receiving condolence cards from the church family. But I've decided that um, we're going to be married, but I'm going to go ahead and just do whatever I want. I'm going to go out with other women on Friday night, and I'm going to have fun and do other things, and I'm going to get drunk if I want to, and I'm, I'm not going to bring you all the money that, that, that you need, and I'm just going to do whatever I want with it. But I want you to know I still love you, and I still want to be married to you. I pull up to the house, and there's handy-dandy locksmith man, okay, changing the locks on the doors. You don't do that. You're either committed or you're not. You're either married or you're not. You may have a piece of paper, but you're not married if you think you can live any way you want and still be faithful to your spouse. And in the same way, see, let's just analyze what Paul really said, all right? I want us to finish, but I just want you to see this. So if somebody asks you, well, now, wait a minute. Can't a person just live a carnal life and, and still be a Christian? Maybe for a short time because they've fallen into the deception of sin and then they're convicted by the Holy Spirit and they come back. But like the prodigal son did. But listen to what Paul really says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, brothers, implying that they're believers, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. But these were some people that were mature Christians. And he says, I slept talking to you as if you were lost. That's like saying, I'm going to get some hot ice. They're oxymoronic. 
Emphasis on the moron. Oxymoronic. You can't have something be ice and also be hot. He says you cannot be both spiritual and fleshly at the same time. Which one are you going to be? You're trying to ride both horses. Get on one or the other because they're going in opposite directions. He's not saying it's perfectly fine, well, and good for you just to sit around and be carnal the rest of your life. He says, no, if you are going to be committed to Christ, you have got to be growing spiritually or else you need to question where you are in Christ. This is why we come to this table. This is why we come and share the bread and the cup. Those of you who have been here a while have heard almost every sermon I could possibly preach on the Lord's Supper. So I have to start repeating it to you now. One of the things I love about Jesus' infallible brilliance about giving us this ordinance, and I know Jesus knew it, but none of his peers did in the first century, is that when you take a bite of bread and you chew it up and you swallow it, it immediately goes into your digestive system. It is broken down into amino acids. It passes through the wall by the blood vessels and is passed to every single cell in your body. You're going to eat a little bitty wafer about this big in just a minute, and it's going to go to your toenail before you leave here today and nourish your toenails and your hair follicles so that you just still have some. What a great image of our union with Christ. And so we come to this table, and we take his body, and we take his blood, and we bring it into who we are, individually and corporately, and Christ nourishes us, and we grow. A week ago Friday, Chrissy Hoggard, our caregiver, had some mashed up banana. She started to give some to mom. Mom pushed it back out of her mouth. That was the last piece of food that was in my mother-in-law's mouth. The last drop of water she's had now in nine days. Beloved, forgive me for being so clinical, but the reality is if my mother-in-law continues to go with no food and no water, she will die. And if you think you can live a Christian life and not be nourished and not be growing, I have news for you. You're either already dead or you're dying. But you are not in Christ. So please, as Paul told us in 1 Corinthians, please, as we come to this table, examine yourself. Ask yourself. Greg said it so well in our Bible study group this morning. It's not so much examine yourself to see if there's any unconfessed sin, although that's part of it. It's also just know who you are. In Christ, who are you? Listen, I fall every day, but thank God so far I always fall forward. And then I have to get up, get my nose back in the joint again, shake myself off, and then with God's help continue moving forward. Who was it I told? Was it Wednesday night? Made the comment. It's a whole lot better to be shot in the chest by the enemy than to be shot in the back as a traitor. Those of us who are followers of Christ cannot live as pygmies. We cannot live with stunted growth. We cannot live with a lack of spiritual development. And I believe that one of the founding marks of a healthy church is that we are living and modeling what it means to be spiritual people. So with that in mind, I invite you to pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. Today we have taken a fly-by look at Almost two dozen passages of Scripture from your word, all of which tell us the same thing, which is that it is your design and your plan that we should be growing. We should be expanding. 
And Father, it begins, I believe, in our spiritual lives, individually and corporately. I pray that as we prepare to come to this table, that we will recognize the fact that it's a wonderful image of the nourishment that we have in Christ. It is a wonderful picture of the way in which we feed on him. And he feeds us so that we can be strong and stronger. So that we can know him more deeply. Experience communion with him more sweetly. Follow him more purely. Father, we're always going to mess up. And so in one sense, yes, we're all prodigal children at times. But Father, if your spirit is living in us, we know that that is an impossible state to maintain if we are your children. So Father, in these few moments, help us to examine ourselves. And then when we come to this table and take this little piece of bread and this little cup, that it will remind us of who we are and whose we are. For it's in Jesus' name that we ask it.